Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of Making History Dope Again. This is going to be one of our final quick takes on this series, uh, Presidents versus the Press. I know I speak for myself, the podcast boys, Ethan and Jonathan, when I say that this series has been really illuminating, um, and we really feel like we've got a chance to review like American history again, but through a really fascinating lens, and that is the relationship of the presidency and the press. So today, uh, we'll be getting to a really consequential president, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, as well as another highly important person, uh, Richard Nixon, um, as we kind of close out this series. Um, these two men, um, it's going to feel like whiplash because a crazy amount of things happen, change in this era, uh, both from their presidencies and then just culturally um, as, a, as a society. Um, and so I think you'll really find the, this episode important, impactful, um, and it's going to really explain how we got to where we are now in 2021. So hope you stay tuned. And as always, thanks for helping us keep history dope. Welcome back, Andrew. Dude, summer break. It's finally here, baby. Yes. School's out for summer. Who would have... the uh, Alice Cooper. <laughs> yes, right? yes. Who who would have thought, you know, 14 months ago that we would finally make it through <laughs> this crazy... What almost really feels like, I'd say like two to three school years kind of jammed into one. It feels... When I think back to August... It feels like three years. Yeah. I, legit. Um, I, I know uh, I have more lines in my forehead <laughs> than I did in August. Yes, um, yes. My I think the circles around my eyes are a little darker. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you got that, uh, that fourth uh, term FDR going oh, on. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. FDR, yeah. Yeah, my, my skin's a little blotchy. Yeah. High ho silver. Yeah, I need to get my uh, life alert ready That's because I, I may fall and not be able to get back up. There's a lot of callbacks in that last sentence. That was <laughs> well, uh, but dude, let me let me say uh, cheers as we're drinking water uh, to getting through this this incredibly tough year. Uh, I want to shout out to my my students uh, especially because I mean, um, learning in that format. Some of them stayed online the entire year. Some of them a little bit of both. You know, in person, online. Uh, sometimes that change on the day. I mean, that is not a, a great way to learn, but they made the most of it. And so shout out to them, man. Yeah, shout out to my students as well. You know, the, and I've said this to this, said this to them many times, just resilience. Like yeah. they've, they've definitely been the definition of resilience. I mean, especially, you know, some of my kids that are in those very consequential years of like junior year, right? Uh, where you've got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff to prepare for, and you're really missing... Uh, some of those key social social events or, or things are a little bit different, but you know they they've made it through and you know they're they're moving forward. They're marching on, and, and I think that resilience is gonna pay dividends as they get older uh, because you know having having lived. I mean, look at all the people we've talked about in this podcast. Um, most of them 
had some degree of hardship in their mm-hmm. life, right? And that became a defining characteristic, like when it when it really mattered most, right? And so I have to imagine that's going to follow them positively, right? Um, it, it is also cool to be able to reference like that this is a moment we're all going to look back on. Yeah. Like, and not just as people who were alive, but historically, right? And so I think, you know, uh, you always wonder like, well, what was it like to to hear that JFK got shot, right? Mm-hmm. What was it like to, you know, where were you when you heard World War II was over? You yeah. know, all those those key turning point moments. Um, it, it's interesting to know that we've just clearly lived through one of those. Yeah, I've told my kids, obviously every day you're living through history, but you don't really realize that the events you experience will be historic. But this yeah. last year of, of 2020s, no doubt, one of those historic years i you know i think of it as like our our version of the 1968 you know Ah. just how how historic that year was in american history you know 2020 i think is is equally as as historic and so uh as a history teacher um i do think that that 2020 has kind of built up some credibility of of like hey look this is why history matters absolutely Uh, yeah because you're you're literally living through these events that that are not only shaping our present but are gonna shape our years to come. You know, for yeah. for who knows how long. Absolutely, we've always um, on this podcast always talked about how fragile like democracy is, mm-hmm. right? How important, you know, uh, my favorite word, nuance uh, mm-hmm. and and details and civility matter. And I think this past year has really just made that so clear, you know, um, and it's, you know, and the thing is, is, is there's always going to be something culturally that's in vogue, right? And that tends to be a pendulum, right? But I think as history teachers, we need to strike it while the iron's hot, right? But what can we do with our communities and our classrooms to make sure that, um, that we hand out, we hand off democracy a little bit stronger than we, than we, we received it, right? Absolutely. And, and that kind of to shift gears Reminds me of one of our, our main subjects today, OBJ, yeah. uh, a guy who I always found to be kind of a conundrum, uh, you know, a guy who personally had a lot of issues with race, but yet is someone that we praise in terms of like the civil rights movement because he struck while the iron was hot, right? He, yeah. he, he used what uh, JFK and Bobby Kennedy had, had started, mm-hmm. uh, and then obviously the current events with you know, the civil rights movement uh, with, you know, Dr. King and just using that as the opportunity to to push forward a political agenda, you know, the quote unquote great society, right? Uh, so yeah, definitely striking while the iron's hot. And I think he, and what's L, interesting about LBJ is that word conundrum, I think is so, is so uh, true with him um, because, you know, when it comes to him personally with race, he uses the N-word frequently. Uh, at one point, his um, his driver, who he always called boy or something worse, asked him not to call him that, and LBJ refused, right? Man, and, okay. and, and, and What I wouldn't do to be like a fly <laughs> on that wall. Right, right. You know, but, but yet, like you said, you know, you don't get the Voting Rights Act. You don't get the, some of the greatest civil the rights civil rights act um, in our history. Affirmative action. You know, he appoints uh, he appoints the first black man to to the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a crazy amount of stuff, and it's not like he was just president. It's not like he just inherited all this stuff. Sure, a lot of this was on the wall mm-hmm. with uh, with JFK when JFK is assassinated, but 
even when JFK introduced it, it was understood that we'll get this passed with LBJ uh, pushing it in vote, yeah. and the Southern vote pushing in. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it comes down to action. You know, yeah. it's are you going to be all talk or are you going to actually right? You know, put your money where your mouth is and, and so do it. When you're president of the United States, there's you know what matters more, action or words. The answer is both. Mm-hmm. But uh, for people listening, how you feel about LBJ is going to depend on how you weigh. Yes. actions and words yes right um because he doesn't have the best words no pretty offensive Sometimes words not even the best actions <laughs> no and and we'll get into that today um but let me tell you um between jfk lyndon b johnson lbj and then richard nixon uh back to back presidency really i mean in in a decade you see such a transformation on in society which is a testament to all that's happening in the mm-hmm. 1960s um but just in terms of just who's in the white house and how do they how do they handle uh the celebrity of being president is is so different um and we also should mention and we've kind of done a great job i think of highlighting technology changes throughout the series right but think about uh think about the introduction of the radio right fdr he jumped on that right he see he, he strikes by the iron's yeah. hot right and, and that and that in a way defines his presidency making him a man of the people because right. they feel like they know him because they listen to him if, on the if, radio. You, if you pick one picture of fdr it's the fireside chat photo, yes you know mm-hmm. it absolutely is if you pick let's keep moving one picture of jfk it's in front of TV cameras, Absolutely. right? And so he also is able to, you know, he's not the first president uh, with TV, but he's the first to really embrace it. Um, and nobody felt more dynamic, more fresh, more authentic than JFK did in 1960 in front of the television, right? And that's something that I think we'll see both LBJ and Richard Nixon are really going to struggle uh, living in the wake of that with, you know, what a what do we do? You know, uh, you're not going to out JFK, JFK. Absolutely. And even though JFK's presidency was so short, it was so momentous and, and, you know, so grandiose of, of kind of redefining what the presidency was, Right. you know, kind of the idea that the president is not only a politician, but a celebrity, right. Um, someone who is admired. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, th- I think back to the Theodore Roosevelt, and even the FDR conversations of being the right men for the right time. I mean, JFK was the right guy for, for the coming of age of television. I mean, a guy who literally looks like a movie star right. uh, who's <laughs> hanging out with movie stars, right. actresses, right. you know, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing I'm sure we'll get into it sure. in your uh, in your spotlight. But, you know, just kind of redefining what it is to be the head of state. Right. And, and so much of that was visual yes right? yeah yes. i mean he has you know because we're in a visual we'll, age now. exactly and so we'll certainly talk um when we do our our kennedy spotlight we'll really dive into uh him and really kind of his entire life uh looking through the lens of uh his health um and kind of how the media perceived that and understood that and sometimes hid that right um but uh, but you know when you think of kennedy and nixon right or kennedy and lbj you know we think back to the famous uh kennedy nixon debates and i don't i don't want to go too far into that but for example not only does kennedy understand that his how he looks on tv matters he has a guy for the job he has yes. a guy whose entire job is to make sure he pops on camera right He's wearing um, the right color suit 
has the right makeup, like actually literally thinking about it from the viewpoint of how are you going to look to the American people at home? Right. And in 1960, one of the closest elections ever, I mean, it comes down to literally the difference of half a million votes between uh, Kennedy and 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 Nixon. Nixon. Those things matter, yes, right. Um, and and I think as we as we'll see uh, in in LBJ Nixon, uh, they're still going to grapple with with mm-hmm. filling those shoes. So I guess let's let's start with that. Um, so of course we know on that fateful day, November nineteen sixty three, uh, Dallas, right? Uh, JFK is assassinated, right? Um, Lyndon B. Johnson is going to um, assume the role of president, actually on Air Force One. Uh, he didn't want any kind of, uh, you know, lapse in, in leadership, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, he's, you know, uh, going to request that that Jackie Kennedy, who is still wearing her her bright pink outfit covered in, in, in her husband's blood. Yes, yes. Uh, he's going to request that she's right next to him as kind of this, um, you know, to increase that authenticity, if you will. Um, and he becomes president, um, you know, on the heels of a guy who captivated, like, like you said, not just political attention, but truly like celebrity, yes. you know. Um, and of course, you know, not only is the nation going to be shocked, is that going to be like a, a challenger or 9-11 or Pearl Harbor moment, you know, Kennedy's assassination, uh, but the funeral is going to mm-hmm. blow up afterwards. That's going to be, you know, you know so we, we use the word viral a lot, right? The, the images of, of John Jr., right. you know, saluting the coffin is, right. you know, those are those are marked down as probably some of the greatest photographs in American history. Right. You know, you even, even for you and I who... <laughs> We weren't even twinkles in our parents' eyes, you know, during this time. Uh, we can still look at those photographs and feel some sort of emotion, yeah. some sort of connection to JFK, even though, I mean, that's 40 years before, 30 years before either of us are born. Yeah, my, my, my parents were <laughs> negative two and negative three. <laughs> <So> <laughs> my, my parents were, were infants. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, here we have it. Uh, this former school teacher, uh, former, uh, uh, I always forget he was a school. He teacher. was a school. Yeah. Te- he would be a scary school teacher, <laughs> wouldn't he? Yeah. Yes. He'd tower over you. Uh, and then, then of course he was, um, the majority leader in the, mm-hmm. in the Senate for a long time. Um, this tall six, four, two twenty. So he ties for the tallest, uh, cause I, he, he and Lincoln, Lincoln, he and Lincoln, I think Lincoln was like six, four and, and something. something yeah. So marginally taller. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know. Uh, this kind of, uh, I don't even know what word to use here. I mean, he's, he's, he's certainly, uh, bumbling to an extent, um, uh, Texan is going to inherit the, the presidency LBJ LBJ all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a quote here, uh, that's from Headley Donovan, who was a white house correspondent. Uh, he said that had Shakespeare studied all of America's presidents, he might have found the richest theater in Lyndon Johnson. And then he goes and he says, or maybe he would have been as powerfully attracted to Richard Nixon. Uh, so these are two guys that are, are going to hold the spotlight in, in, in a different way that, that JFK did. Uh, but I just love that quote, you know, because Shakespeare's, if, if, you, if, you know, if you remember anything from high school, you know, 
get get rid of the fact that you don't understand <laughs> the English, but you know all the drama, yeah, of a Shakespeare play that certainly embodies the LBJ presidency. the LBJ presence yeah. and even carries over to the Nixon presidency. Uh, so so being JFK's vice president, LBJ hated it, right? Oh, he hated he it. hated yeah. being the vice president. Um, LBJ was known as a guy who was who was very friendly to the press, somewhat loose lipped. Uh, with you know, <laughs> I'd say loose everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and so JFK had to keep him on a very short leash. Uh, tried to keep him out of the loop. Sent him overseas they on keep, purpose. They keep him busy, basically. They yeah. literally try to keep yeah. him away from from the press. Uh, now there is, uh, and again, we'll we'll talk more in in the JFK spotlight. But there's, you know, it, this isn't just because uh, LBJ was a very different, very different from JFK. But it's all it's also because like they had had a history, you know, um, you know, in in, in 1956 uh, when Kennedy was a rising star, um, Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, had reached out to Lyndon B. Johnson and basically said, "Hey, how about you run for president?" 1956 and make Kennedy uh, JFK your running mate, your vice president, right? And LBJ turns him down, right? Uh, and then, so then in 1960, when you have it flipped, and now you know JFK is going to be the the nominee and and wants LBJ, uh, he accepts, but it's it's pretty contentious, yeah. right? And so there had been there even was is evidence that LBJ tried to get a hold of um, uh, Kennedy's medical records. And, and if he had had it, I think he almost certainly would have used it yeah. to discredit Kennedy. And so I think part of it also was they were they were rivals in the Democratic Party. Elder statesmen versus the up and coming. And you have you have a, a, a Bostonian, right? Uh, and a Texan. Versus a, a Texan who, who wasn't afraid to use Dixiecrat kind of uh, dog whistle mm-hmm. vernacular, right? Uh, while also bringing sweeping change. Right. And so, you know, they, they keep him busy in the presidency. And so I think when he gets it, you know, uh, it's going to feel very different because they are very different. Um, and I think, number one, his, his, his relationship with the media, is he's going to be always remembered as the guy who dared to disrupt Camelot. Right. Yeah. Um, there's this great quote in the book we read this week of uh, uh, this tech, the son of a Texas farmer had committed the unpardonable sin of interrupting Camelot, right? <laughs> I love that. And that certainly is going to become, uh, going to feel true, at least to, to LBJ. Yeah, um, yeah. even though he he personally, you know, whatever the conspiracy theories may be, you know, he, he didn't have anything to do with the assassination, but the media is not going to let him off the hook. You know, right. the press was so infatuated with the Kennedy administration uh, I think that quote just beautifully sums up kind of their their resentment towards the fact that that there's a changing of the guard, no matter right. whose fault it is. You know, I think they were also enamored uh, or in love with the idea of Camelot. That right. That in their eyes, and even even the fact that the assassination somewhat makes the Kennedy administration kind of a martyr. Right. Right. It kind of elevates it to that status of. Who dares comes out? Who dare comes after? <laughs> who this, dare right? fill that their exactly. shoes? Exactly. Now, uh, to be fair, right? Uh, we've mentioned how how the media nobody's going to meet that mark that mm-hmm. Kennedy had, right? But to be fair, LBJ is running things a little bit different. So, for example, with his 
his style of press conferences, um, JFK was such a celebrity, and he would meticulously plan mm-hmm. his conferences. Now, in his press conferences, um, they actually were so popular, they had to move them out of the room in the White House, and they had to find just like a, a bigger yeah, theater. In the State Department later, Yeah, later in, uh, you know, elsewhere in, in D.C. to host, because hundreds yeah, and hundreds of people journalists. Would, would pile in to see. So it was really this, this moment. He was like mm-hmm. going to a concert, right? Um, LBJ, uh, rather than <laughs> than meticulously planning, now Kennedy always managed to make it look effortless, but really there were literally days of planning yeah. before each one, right? Uh, JFK, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, is just going to kind of randomly, spur of the moment, hold these conferences. Yes, yes. he uh, he's going to hold like 20, 26 news conferences in the first six weeks, and as you said, he, he he definitely experiments with these locations, many of which are spur of the moment. So so some of the the famous <laughs> ones, uh, he was known to do laps around the White House yard, the grounds, yeah, and and give interviews while he's like speed walking. So they're running after him with <laughs> like uh, microphones and and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one where he's in. Uh, He's in Texas. Uh, he oftentimes would would uh, run the presidency from his his ranch in mm-hmm. in Texas, and uh, he basically uh, held his press conference uh, on a bale of hay, uh, you know. And so again, this is going to feel very different. Now, to be fair, he did buy all the correspondents who attended. He did buy them cowboy hats, Stetsons, Stetsons. Yeah. So they looked the part. Um, but again, that just feels different. Um, there's moments where. <laughs> Uh, he really does, I think, want to be accessible. Yes. Um, but I think he... Uh, he's a bit too accessible? He's too accessible, and he doesn't realize that he kind of almost makes himself the butt of a joke. Yeah, he almost kind of uh, cheapens the presidency. In yeah, a way. I think that's a perfect way. So, example, also early on, um, uh, he basically one day... It's not like people are asking for this. He spontaneously decides... This is also, in, I believe, in Texas. Yes. Decides to give uh, reporters a tour of their home. I love this story. Um, and it's not like this was a prepared thing. His wife, who was always known as, as Lady Bird, who, by the way, was a very apt politician. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would be very useful to him in winning the Southern vote in uh, 1964. Um, but basically she's cooking dinner. They have guests over Uh her family's over her family's over. Uh, it's, it's ready. They literally just need Lyndon to sit down and eat with them. And he decides now is a great moment for me to give you a tour of my home. Uh, and (laughs) basically lady bird doesn't want this to happen. Yeah. Makes it very clear. He's like, Oh no, we'll do it anyways. Um, and so as he's, uh, as he's giving them this tour through the house, the, her family is shocked and, yeah. uh, and offended and dismayed, right? Probably a bit hangry. He, uh, he goes to this closed door. It's locked. He knocks on the door and he says, Lady Bird, let me in. Uh, <laughs> and then without any sign of embarrassment, and again, the reporters did not ask to be here, yes. right? Uh, he says, she locked me out. Right, but he doesn't give up. He keeps pounding on the door, and finally, she opens up the door, and it's the couple's bedroom. Mm-hmm. And the bed hasn't been made. Bed she hasn't didn't been made. No, they were coming, and he doesn't stop. He goes to their he goes to their bathroom, and gives them a tour of their bathroom. And there's you know toothpaste stains, yes. and you know, uh, and to Lady Bird's credit, she does everything she can to kind of <laughs> freshen up. it up as uh, as they're doing it. But what an this, episode of MTV Cribs! It really is. <laughs> it really is. But this is 
how LBJ operated, presented himself. Um, uh, there's so many examples where he calls people in for a unscheduled briefing, mm -hmm. and he's changing. Yeah, uh, there's that famous story of he's getting his uh, he's getting his pants altered uh, by a tailor, and uh, and while fielding questions from reporters he asked the he asked the the tailor if uh they could give him a little bit extra room in the crotch so I'll let you interpret that yeah. for yourself right and so uh, there's times where he invites people and he's swimming in the white house pool this is the same one that fdr mm -hmm. you know had installed right uh and he's naked yes and he dipping. encourages them to join him I almost i wouldn't say forces yeah them, <laughs> forces uh, some journalists to join him in that way uh, there, there's another quote from the Washington Post. Uh, I think it's important to note that, that LBJ's hero was FDR, mm -hmm. right? And I think you can kind of see in a, in a lot of this history, him trying to mimic FDR. And I think sometimes mimicking so hard, uh, he was blind to how culture and technology had changed. Absolutely. So the, the quote says, uh, Johnson had FDR's razzle dazzle with the press, but he arrived on the scene when the press was infinitely more sophisticated and cynical and suspicious than it was in Roosevelt's day. So kind of that idea once again of, of he's going to kind of cheapen the presidency in a way to using that razzle dazzle when the press is kind of over that, you know, they've matured, they've grown up. Uh, but LBJ doesn't quite see that. Now he was, and this is very important to him getting so much stuff done. We referenced how a crazy amount of legislation was was passed during LBJ's presidency, and it's again not because he was just there at the right time. It's because he forced things in. Yeah, he's but active. He was very aggressive, uh, one on one, um, and that was part of the reason why he was such uh, an effective um, legislator when he was in the Senate. Um, and part of the reason why he was selected uh, to be JFK's running mate was they knew um, if you get him on board, he'll uh, he'll get stuff done for you. So you know he's six foot three. He was famous for what he called his Johnson tre treatment. Now I'm sure many of us in the po in uh, listening, you you know this photo. But if not, just just Google Johnson treatment, and you'll see what we're talking about. He's famous for using all of his. We know he doesn't have many boundaries. No, no. His bubble was non-existent, right? And he's six foot three. So he's famous six four. for... for Oh, excuse me. Six four. Six four. My apologies. Yeah. He's famous for, for uh, getting way too close to mm -hmm. people in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Sometimes they're in a hallway and he's so close, he's kind of pushing them against the wall. Sometimes he's very happy to in a very formal setting, reach his big Texas arm around you. And if he's trying to make a point, kind of push his thumb mm -hmm. India in kind of an uncomfortable way. He doesn't have boundaries, but he's aware he is aware that that lack of boundary yeah. makes people who are very formal uncomfortable. Yes. Um, and to be fair, like th those strategies get things passed. It's a power move for sure. Uh, ben, ben Bradley uh, from the Washington Post uh, said, you really felt as if a St. Bernard had been licking your face for an hour <laughs> because he was just that large, that much in your face. Uh, sometimes spittle, you know, yeah. would would uh, come out of his mouth. But, you know, you really did feel, he would wear you out. He would wear you out yeah. and wear you down. Uh, he, he would bring those boundaries down. 
Um, Those the 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 back to the whole swimming naked in the pool thing. Yeah. Sometimes he'd invite people, you know, to swim with him, mm-hmm. and as you said, he would kind of he would he went kind of he would badger them yes. into joining him naked in the pool, and then while they're trying to field questions in some form of formality, you know, he's swimming naked, he's swimming laps around them. And he's just and he's he's answering questions while making off-color jokes. I can I can just imagine know? him submerging himself all the way under the water, and then <laughs> all of a sudden pop up right in front of the journalist. Uh, there's another, and I, I mean all these stories are somewhat the same, but uh, there's another example of him uh, inviting a reporter into his bedroom uh, while he was getting a massage, completely naked, <laughs> and. Uh, really cut the 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 journalist off guard and at the end of it uh jumps up off the table completely in the nude bends over right in front of the journalist <laughs> to get a uh, a copy of i think either like a speech or a photograph that he's been autographed yeah, and yeah. handed to him and Which even is... a girl in one of our classes we had one of our uh, like question sessions with the professor yeah. she was explaining how her father had a very similar experience uh it was either a father or grandfather i don't remember uh as a, as a journalist in dc uh who encountered LBJ naked. That's hilarious. Uh, getting wow. a massage. So definitely that idea of a power move. I think kind of like the the barber's hour, but like on steroids. Of, right. I'm a man. Look at me. This right. is how comfortable I am. I'm gonna make you uncomfortable uh, in in efforts to to seize the control. Um, that was definitely his style as part of that that treatment, the right. Johnson treatment. Right. And it does lead to real things being passed. I mean, and I think. Uh, back to you mentioned how 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 FDR was was his hero, right? Um, and not just he looked up to him. I mean, really, he would reference at key moments in his presidency, uh, you know, what FDR had done or, or would have done or what he think he would have done, right? Um, but you know, he <laughs> I lost my train of thought there. Um, excuse me. Where was I going with that, man? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. No, yeah, you're, you're. I think you were onto it. You know, this idea of, of using that power as a way to get stuff done. Because um, he, I think he is a man very much obsessed with his own personal legacy. I mean, I think all presidents, you have to have some sort of ego in order to do the job. Um, did you find your train of thought? I did. I did. So what I was going with was just all the stuff he had done, and we referenced mm-hmm. some of these, but. Um, uh, you could argue that that we oftentimes think of Lyndon B. Johnson, his Johnson treatment, mm-hmm. right? His his enjoyment of being naked, and we think of uh, Vietnam, right? Yeah. But what we oftentimes overshadow is, you know, we, th- we we forget about his great society, his war on poverty. You could argue that nobody since FDR utterly transformed American society. So I'm just going to list these off, and some of these we've mentioned already, but. Uh, Civil Rights Act, literally a hundred years in the making, right? Uh, urban mass transportation and food stamp programs, the Voting Rights Act, um, Medicare, Medicaid, Freedom of Information, uh, federal gun control. Um, we mentioned the first black man, Thurgood Marshall, uh, of course, of Brown versus Board of Education, is the first black Supreme Court justice. Um, and that's not even all of them, right? Yeah, and those are significant things that still impact us to today absolutely and so uh his method is extremely unethical unethical uh, but it does it does 
results in real results, yeah. right? You can quantify that. Um, I will say, though, I, I do think while he was willing to kind of uh, put himself on full display, right, to get things done, it is ultimately his very fragile ego that is really, as things start to unravel, and man, those late 1960s, there is such social upheaval, right? Um, as that starts to happen and pressure starts to cave on him, his ego is going to make it so much worse for himself. Um, and so, for example, there's people who work for him who, who talk about how um, he would blow sky high if he didn't get basically a, a a cupcake of a story written about mm -hmm. him, right? If basically if the story didn't say something about how he's monumental and incredible, he was furious, yeah. right? And he would not only be mad and want to respond to the journalist, but he would punish his staff, right? Um, and so it, I have to imagine a little bit of a toxic work environment, yeah. Um, particularly as as you know he's going to get the United States more involved in Vietnam, uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution, right? Uh, Congress is essentially going to write a, a blank check, uh, and we are going to really combat troop, involve ourselves in Vietnam, um, and he's going to really commit to that, right? But then as as things, as we get deeper and deeper in this, you oftentimes hear it's called unwinnable, unwinnable conflict in Vietnam, um, he is going to become more paranoid. His ego is going to become only more fractured. He's going to become more sensitive. Very thin skin. Very thin skin. I mean, it, it felt a little bit as... Uh, not the actions of John Adams. John Adams, of course, you know, this the Sedition Acts, right? But certainly the emotions yes. of, of Adams, right? To, to be fair, very sensitive, hard to work for, but he never does cross that line of uh, stopping the freedom of the press. And in some ways, he he, he elevates it in, in the terms of the war. Yeah. I mean, we have to give him credit for um, the battlefield co uh, coverage. You know, he didn't have to do that. But he, you know, he allowed um, to publish photographs, the coverage of battles, uh, those images of, of violence and death. Um, he, he definitely, you know, allowed the Vietnam War to be brought into people's homes. Um, so that is an important thing to note. Like you were saying, he, he may have the emotional um, similarities to, to Adams, but, you know, he doesn't restrict the press like, like some of his predecessors did. I think I think that's noble in, in, yeah. in a sense, um, but I think it did hasten his undoing. Yes, you know? yes. There there were quotes that you know, Vietnam was the death to the Johnson presidency. Um, he he definitely struggled with any sort of criticism. Um, it, it was obvious that that those who loved JFK made it known to him that he was not JFK, hmm. um, and so he's going to become very paranoid. One thing I do want to touch on, you, you mentioned it earlier, but he installed radios all throughout the White House mm. so that every one of his aides, he even had his aides carry around transistor, trans, uh, transistor radios so that they could be up to date in the latest news and information. Um, he had three TV sets in the Oval Office. And so he would watch all three networks, NBC, <laughs> CBS, ABC at the same time. He was very well yes. read. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yes. Uh, and if any of the stations uh, gave him bad press, he did not hesitate to call the stations and complain. <laughs> you know, So this was a guy who definitely was paying attention to the news, 
Because like we've learned throughout this series, presidents don't like criticism. Now, how they handle that is different. And, and this, is, this is obviously, Johnson's not going to handle it well. Um, and, and to be fair, back to the Vietnam thing, so much of, of his presidencies, I, I think if you, you take away the Vietnam conflict, he's still Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. He's still a little too loose. You could argue that there may have been something else that could have become his undoing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in a lot of ways, I think his own worst enemy was himself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's a very true statement. Um, but on Vietnam, you know, uh, many of the people who support him initially and even though you know you can't fill those shoes of kennedy but you know he's trying civil rights act voting rights act literally a century in the making he gets it done right uh, the the reporters who have his back they do start to turn on him with the vietnam war as that gets deeper and darker and there's and more information comes more to draft orders being called out right um and so you know he's gonna lose uh the washington post he's gonna lose Walter Lippmann, who, you know, of course, his great society is is coined from a, a, a book of this of a similar name yeah. by by Lippmann. Um, he's going to lo- lose Life magazine um, right at the end of his presidency. Uh, Walter Cronkite, who, who really was uh, the voice of America. the voice of America. Right. Um, he's going to sour on Vietnam as well. Here's the quote uh, of Cronkite. Uh, This is uh, February 27th, um, 1967. It is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as honorary people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy uh, and did the best they could. Famously, Johnson, uh, who, as you mentioned, was watching this. Of course, he was watching this as this happened. He turned to his aides and said, if I have lost Cronkite, I have lost middle America. Um, And so uh, it's going to get dark for him. And his sensitive ego and his almost need to fight back, Mm -hmm. right, is going to only make it harder on himself. And so... Um, it isn't until March of the next year, 1968, um, that a reporter uh, is going to ask LBJ, hey, are you going to run for re-election? Uh, now, we had skipped over this, but of course, he's going to inherit uh, Kennedy's term, right, 63, and he knows that in less than a year, he has to run for re-election in 64, um, and that's still kind of in that grace period, Yeah. Um, and he's really going to beat beat up uh barry goldwater yeah, pretty it's, it's a pretty bad pretty bad um to be fair barry goldwater was um uh, really a cowboy in, in all the senses uh and and uh, i don't think he had much of a chance of winning in general um he was such a hawk on like the yeah. cold war i think if you just appeared even slightly more rational i think you look to yeah, a better a pretty extreme he's very extreme right um so he wins in 64 but now 68 coming up right and between those four years, uh, LBJ has been the face of this war mm-hmm. that is not only killing your people overseas, but it's erupting in the streets. You have the counterculture movement, the hippie movement. Yeah, the, Kent, um, the Kent, uh, Kent State is going to happen uh, under under Nixon, mm, under okay. Nixon. But but there's similar movements, movements similar like movements up. like that, um, protest movements. Think about Malcolm is killed in '65, yeah. uh, and then of course in '68, Martin Luther King, um, and they're not the only ones, you know. And so. The nation is turning on itself, right? It's unraveling 
upon itself. And he's the face of that. By 1968, when he opens up his blinds out of the Oval Office, he's seeing signs of, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today, right? And so in 1968, this reporter's going to ask, hey, are you running for re-election? Uh, and it's kind of a joke to the people around that reporter. Um, uh, an aide would say that uh, uh, there was as much chance as uh, of him not running for election as there was of Richard Nixon not running again, too. <laughs> so the point being, like, I don't think he's going to do it. But a little bit later, um, that same month, March 31st, uh, he's going to go on national television and say that he will not seek or accept his party nomination for for president. Um, so this pressure did have an impact on him. Um, now, his health wasn't great, you know, either, but I really do think it, it was this pressure of, of Vietnam and everything else that ultimately causes him uh, not to run. Certainly, Robert Kennedy yes. is a very outspoken critic of Johnson, also in the Democratic Party. Um, and so I think he's probably thinking that Robert Kennedy might be able to give him a run for his money, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and of course, Robert Kennedy's going to be assassinated yeah. uh, right before, you know? What um, if? Big what if question. But, you know, it's a really interesting a really interesting end to Johnson. It, yeah. it feels like he came in like a lion and he kind of uh, leaves a little bit like a lamb. Yeah. Um, but in, in some ways he still leaves on his own terms. Sure, I think, I think sure. that probably played a big part in his deciding not to seek reelection. Cause you know, I can, I can imagine things don't look great for him. Um, and then you have Bobby Kennedy who, you know, is going to emulate what his brother did. You know, that could, that could have, you know, s stroke some spheres of I'd rather go out on my own terms than go out in defeat. But I do love that idea of went in as a lion and, and came out a, a bit of a lamb, right. for sure. Right. And of course, when he is going to not seek re-election, Robert Kennedy, to a lot of people, Was is the front runner. Is the uh, he's the successor, and uh, I think in the media, especially and for young people, um, you know, young people especially feel like hope was killed on that November day when JFK was. And Robert Kennedy seems like the only possible successor to Camelot, right? And so when he's killed, you know, the party is really going to be in a, a tough situation. Ultimately, um, Hubert Humphrey is going to pick up the mantle for the Democratic Party. Uh, Richard Nixon, yes. who we hadn't heard from in quite some time, is going to come back. And it's a close election, but Richard Nixon is going to be successful um, in 1968, um, you know, and uh, I, I really do think this is going to usher, and I call it the unraveling, but I think yeah. I think if you think about where we were in 1960, where we were in 1968, and then we were, where we were by the time Nixon is going to resign from office, different Americas at each of those junctures, right? Absolutely. And I think we still feel that. We still see that. Uh, and how we feel uh, about presidents and how the press portrays presidents uh, is different also. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, this idea of, and I think we'll get into this in the Nixon episode, but the idea that there is now a credibility gap. Yes. The, the presidency has lost its credibility. And in the same sentence, the media has now risen to such a stature 
and, and such a power where its focus is to make and put the presidency in check right. um, and keep them credible. Right. It, it's not only a, 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 that you have a free press, but rather it's the job of a free press to hold the president accountable. And so this credibility gap that it has really been building for mm-hmm. quite some time, but it becomes voiced under LBJ and then voiced even louder yeah. under Nixon. Because of the Vietnam War. <sighs> Vietnam War. And then, of course, we'll get into the counterculture and all the other things, too. But, you know, um, they really feel like the, the media, the, you know, the, the fourth estate, right, needs to hold leaders accountable because uh, at least there's this feeling that we can't assume that's happening anymore yeah. unless we check on it, right? And I think that'll really become clear in our, in our next episode with, with Richard Nixon. So um, should we stop there and I then pick so, up with, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think th- there's so much to do with Nixon. I don't mm-hmm. want to have to rush it. And so um, I think I think this episode shows a little bit of that transition um, of like how we got to where we are today. And I think that'll really be, kind of finished when we when we close yeah, with Nixon. Yeah. Nixon's yeah. the nail in the coffin. I really think he is. And let me tell you, he he ran towards that nail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think he I think he drove the nail. I think himself. he drove the nail yes, himself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well guys, thank you for listening to an episode of uh Make History Dope Again. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out. With a guy like LBJ, there's so much to say. Mm-hmm. Uh there's so much that we had to condense because literally there's there's a dime a dozen on, on stories on LBJ uh, and not just on nudity, on everything else too. <laughs> yes. um, but you're always welcome to engage with us and let us know what you think. Uh, let us know what we got wrong, stuff like that. Um, yeah. Jonathan, you want to close this out? Well, as always, you know, like us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. But until next time, stay safe, stay sane, wear a mask. Yeah, wear a mask. Unless you're fully vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, yeah. Bye, guys. Until next time.